Hey, this is Keith. I'm the pastor of Blaze Church. Welcome to our podcast. I know today's message is going to inspire you, encourage you, and lead you to know God more. If you want to connect with us, visit us online at blazechurch.org. Enjoy today's message. All right, 11 o'clock. Who's ready for God's word? Come on, it's going to be awesome. Man, this is just so cool to be worshiping Jesus with you. A little bit of housekeeping before we get started in case you're wondering where things are. If you need to use the restroom, they are in the back of the room just beyond the curtains. If you've got kids, we encourage you to get them checked in over to Blaze Kids, which is to my right. And that's it. You guys saw the whole place. Welcome to Blaze Church. It's pretty awesome, right? Oh, we've got, we've got a beautiful water scenic view for you as you exit and as you come in. And of course, the nectar that supplies all Christian needs coffee. Come on, give amen for coffee. It's in the back right there. So, man, this is just cool. We're just having fun. And, and I truly do believe that God continues to have the best plan and the best timing for his people. And I was just talking to somebody and they were saying, how cool is it that our transition into this space happened at a beautiful time of the year, spring, new life. Because I know if we came here in January, you people would have thought I was crazy. Why are you bringing me to a cold basement with a frozen lake? And so we're just thankful that uh, God continues to order our steps and really grateful to be here this morning. Well, we're going to get into this massive topic of the resurrection. But before we get there, I want to reminisce a little bit with you. How many of you guys remember pre-pandemic something called a buffet? Can I get an Amen. Come on, remember buffets? I mean, I don't, I don't know if they're open. I don't know when they'll open. I've got my favorites. But a buffet is just so beautiful because you pay a singular price and you get to go in and eat as much food as you can of the items that you want, the ones I want. Like, I'll give you $15, but I'm really just here for the little donuts and the ice cream on top, and I have no problem doing that. It's just, that, that's a buffet right there. And Amy knows, like, for me, I got this issue where I want to get my money's worth and I always want the house to lose. So she's like, why are you having another plate? Because I I want to make sure that I won today for my $15. But what I find on my plate, what you might find on your plate at a buffet is the things that you want, the things that you like. Like we'll just pass over the stuff that doesn't look good, the stuff that doesn't smell good, the stuff that's not going to put a good taste in our mouth. The good part of buffet is I can just skip that stuff and I can pick and choose the things that I want to take in. So let me connect some dots for us and move from physical food to spiritual food. Too often, we treat Christianity like it's a buffet. We go through and we open up scripture and we say, these things I understand, these things I like, I love the promises, I love the blessings, I love when God says he's always going to be there, I'm going to have peace, I'm going to have joy, love that. And then I come up against a scripture that says, forgive the person who's hurt you. I don't know that I can do that. That must not mean what Jesus said. Trust him with the first 10% of my finances? What? what? surrender my life, deny myself, pick up the cross and follow him. The biblical worldview on marriage and sexuality and relationships, no, 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 I can't accept any of that. I'm going to choose the parts that I like and forget the rest. And that's so many people's approach to Jesus, right? That we just say, I'm going to take what I want, what feels good, and I'm going to leave behind the stuff that I don't like and that I don't want. And I just created a Christian buffet line. 
So I want to talk about one singular moment where if it is true and if it did happen, it needs to shape the rest of the words and the life of Jesus. And if it did not happen, then we really have nothing to gain by following anything he said or living our lives for him. Let me read you a quote, a response to Christian buffets. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. Let's say that together. If Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? And let me show you the last part of this quote. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The big issue of Christianity, the big issue of doubt and of faith and of all that we've explored for these four weeks together is not what Jesus said, but what he did. Did he rise from the dead? Because he might have said things about forgiveness and marriage and relationships and finances and lives and all of that. But if he didn't do something, if he didn't rise from the dead, then what he said should not impact our lives. Or if I can show you what the author, the letter of Corinthians, his name was Paul said, he said it this way, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. That's some pretty strong words from a believer to a group of believers. If Christ did not raise from the dead, you have a useless faith and you're still guilty of your sins. Because if we don't have a resurrected savior, all that we have then is a dead sacrifice, right? That's exactly what the Old Testament pre-Jesus was. It was sacrifice after sacrifice to atone for sin after sin. So if Jesus didn't come back from the dead and he simply died, our sins are not forever forgiven. It's temporary. He goes on and says, in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. So then he talks about a future hope. If Jesus didn't resurrect, you and I can't expect resurrection. We should just adopt the worldview that says when you die, you're dead and you stay dead in the ground. And he ends it this way. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Or as one translation puts it, I pity the fool. I pity the Christian. I pit, I pit, that Christian should be pitied more than anyone else in the world. See, Paul's not pulling his punches here when it comes to faith in the resurrection. And we're doing this series, or concluding it today, called I Have My Doubts. And we began by talking about absolutism and exclusivity. Is Christianity really the only way? There are so many religions. How could that claim to be the only way? We talked about literalism and believing the Bible for what it says. And last week, we talked about pain and suffering and evil. But guys, none of those topics and everything we've discussed has any weight or means anything or is truth if Jesus did not rise from the dead. All we are doing is drinking from a fountain of lies. We sit on a throne of lies. We smell like beef and cheese. A little elf reference there. There's, there's really nothing to our faith. There's nothing to our Christianity. We have nothing to stand on if Jesus did not rise from the dead. So this morning, we are going to talk about the resurrection. Is it a historically accurate event or not? The title of my message today is Doubt It. Can you say that with me? Doubt It. Because for some of us in this space, maybe here or online, you doubt the resurrection, now, here's what I'm going to challenge you to do then throughout our time together. There is something that is fueling your doubt in the resurrection and proving faith in something else. Does that make sense? It's not that you just don't have faith or don't believe. 
You just don't believe in the resurrection, so you've pushed all of your faith into your doubts about the resurrection. You need to have enough evidence to prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And I'm hoping for you that that evidence is sure and secure because it's what you're basing your life on. Now, I want to go back to the first Easter, the resurrection, and after we consider the evidence, possibly, would you doubt your doubts today about the resurrection and say, in light of the evidence, the most clear reason for the empty tomb is a resurrected savior. So we're gonna travel back in time, 2,000 years. Everyone should have a seatbelt on their chair. Buckle up. Here we go. John chapter 20, verse one. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, this is the first Easter, first day of the week. Jesus died on Friday. This is the third day. And early in the morning, she heads out there. Verse two. So she came running to Simon Peter, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, can you say these words with me in yellow? They have taken the Lord. Mary's first response to the empty tomb was they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. I found that to be very interesting that the first response of a disciple of Jesus, one who believed in him, who followed him for years, says they have taken him. She doesn't say, James, John, Peter, Matthew, he's alive. Jesus is resurrected. Everything he prophesied, all that the prophets have said, it's true. He's gone. He's resurrected. She does not embrace faith in the resurrection. Does anyone see that? That's interesting. Instead, she puts her faith in her doubt. She immediately goes to an objection of Christianity the resurrection, it says they've taken his body. There's been grave robbing. I think if you don't believe in the resurrection today, you should find some comfort in knowing that the first eyewitness to the empty tomb did not believe in the resurrection either. Like if you came to this space and you say, I don't know if I can fit into church. I don't know if I'm welcomed here. I have my doubts about the resurrection. So did the disciples. They did not assume resurrection as their first reason. She assumes doubt. They have taken the body. So what I want to do is I want to show you four major objections that we have today to the resurrection of Christ. And maybe this is your objection, or maybe you've heard someone share this objection before. But these are the big claims against Christ came back to life. And the first one is this. Jesus didn't really die. The first objection to the resurrection of Christ is that he never really died in the first place. And this actually is the official position of Islam. This is what they would say about Jesus, that he lived, he was crucified, but somehow, although being whipped, beaten, beard pulled, and crown of thorns, and robe on his back, and stabbed with a spear, and nailed to a cross, they took an almost dead Jesus and threw him into the tomb, rolled a stone over the entrance, an almost dead Jesus had enough strength to roll the stone away, overpower Roman centurions, escape, bandage himself, and show up and convince everybody he came back to life. Now, I don't know. The evidence doesn't seem to support that. In fact, scholars and historians reject this objection outright on the basis of Rome's ability to crucify people. 
So Rome goes down in history of being experts of execution. Imagine if that's your reputation as an empire. Oh, we, were, we, we perfected execution. It's said that they would crucify as many as 6,000 criminals a day to send a message of the power of their empire. These guys knew how to kill somebody. And they knew when somebody was dead. And so to, to put all of your hope in that Jesus was mostly dead, Oh, Princess Bride, he's not fully dead, he's just mostly dead. I don't know that the evidence helps us embrace that. So what about the second objection? It's the one that Mary believed. The body was stolen. So this, this objection says that there was grave robbers who came and took the corpse of Jesus and hid it long enough for people to believe the lie that Christ resurrected. Now here's the issue with this. We're going to read it in a few moments. John tells us that the linens were left behind when the body was taken. The linens were the most expensive part of grave robbing. So what thief is going to say, no, no, I'm not here for the expensive stuff. I just want the corpse. Like, how does that benefit a grave robber? So what we've done in our modern era is we've said, okay, it wasn't a grave robber. It was the disciples themselves. They stole the body. They broke in. They overpowered the Roman centurions, took the body, hid it long enough to start the lie, get Christianity booming in the first century, and it's sustained ever since. Okay, so I just want to say this, and I'm not trying to be offensive to any of the apostles, but those guys were not that smart. Can I just say that? Like, if you've read the gospel accounts, you recognize, like, these guys, there was a couple there. There was some smart ones in the bunch. Like, Matthew understood numbers and Judas, but you've got Peter, James, and John leading the charge. Like, these, I just picture them as muscle men that just don't have the biggest brains. Like, they're known as the sons of thunder. They just want to call down fire on people. So, really, we're going to say that somehow this ragtag bunch of men figured out how to overpower Roman centurions, roll the stone away, and hide the body for 2,000 years where no archaeological dig has yet to bring up the bones of Jesus? I mean, when we read the accounts of Jesus and the disciples, the disciples are made to be out to be afraid and cowards, and the women are eyewitnesses. How does that hold any weight to say that they just stole the body? In fact, this is very interesting, in the Gospels, there's accounts of the Pharisees saying the disciples stole the body and it being refuted at that time in the first century through writings. So it's just like all there, this evidence doesn't support this objection. So here's the third one. The third objection is that they went to the wrong tomb. So I am directionally challenged. I just need everyone to know that. If you drive with me, my wife's nodding her head. She knows. There's two things you should know if you drive with me. Wear your seatbelt, for goodness sake. And make sure that I have a GPS telling me when to turn and where to go. It took me forever to realize we live on the South Shore in Shirley. So I don't, I don't know, like, how directionally challenged were the disciples that they went to the wrong tomb in the first century? Like, how do they get that wrong? And then for 2,000 years, how do we not uncover the right tomb and expose the bones of Jesus? So I don't know how that one works. Here's the last one, the last major objection, the one that I found to be the most interesting is that the disciples borrowed the idea of resurrection. That there was enough stories circulating about individual resurrection and all the disciples had to do was apply it to Jesus and get people to buy into a worldview they already embraced and just throw it on towards him. But here's the issue. This worldview did not exist in the first century. Look at this. The Greeks who followed the writings of Plato and Homer 
did not believe in individual resurrection as something beneficial. The whole Greek philosophy was to escape the material world and enter the, this extra world, this spiritual world. And if you somehow resurrected, that was not someone we'd follow. The gods were mad at you and sent you back to earth. So no non-Jewish person would embrace this and give up their life for it and say, oh yeah, I'm going to follow someone that the gods banished. And for the Jewish people, they believed in a community resurrection that would happen at the end of time, not an individual resurrection in the middle of human history. That's why, if you're familiar in John 9, when Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead, his sister says, yes, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the saints. Their entire worldview was simply a community resurrection, not an individual one. All that to say is that their worldview did not allow for Jesus to resurrect individually unless he actually did it. There would be no evidence to convince people in the first century, there is a man, his name was Jesus, he is God, he died and came back to life, unless there is a historical moment where it takes place. It did not fit it. So they couldn't borrow it from anywhere and put it on Jesus. A new worldview virtually overnight surfaces in the middle of the Roman Empire. So let's keep reading and see what happens. We've got Mary's doubt. But now what about the other disciple, John? So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And look at verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. Say these four words with me. He saw and believed. So I, I think this is really funny, the way that it's written. Because the other disciple is the author of the writing. His name is John. And if you go back to verse 4, it says, Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. How cool is that that John says, I'm going to make sure everyone knows who's faster. I beat my friend Peter to the tomb. Like, it's a, a, a point that adds nothing to the story except for the fact that he's giving a detail, which, this is back with literalism, C.S. Lewis he actually uses this as a reason why we can believe in the authenticity of Scripture. Because in this time, these kinds of details, while we accept them because now we have narrative and fiction, that type of literature did not exist in this way. So the fact that John takes time to write that he outran Peter was not just bragging rights around the table. He's writing in a literary style that had not been invented till hundreds of years later. What's he doing? He's saying these were the exact details. This is what happened. We both took off and I beat that guy. It was awesome. But for those who embrace scripture's authority, it's another proof point that there is literalism in scripture. But what about our topic this morning, the resurrection? We read in verse 8 that John went in and he saw and believed. There was some evidence there that caused John, unlike Mary, to not doubt and embrace grave robbing, but to believe something. And I would like to show you three things that I see and believe today. This is why I personally believe in the resurrection. The first is what we're talking about. It is the empty tomb. 
Because I, I believe that the tomb was empty because Jesus resurrected, because the stone was rolled away and because he is alive. Now, as you're hearing this, if you have evidence that causes you to believe differently, you've got to know that that evidence is sure and secure because you're basing your life on that. Again, going back to what we started with, if Jesus rose from the dead, if he actually came back to life, he should shape our entire lives. Our whole being should be about him and what he has said because of what he has done. And the tomb was empty because Jesus came back from the grave. There are six independent sources that are written within 30 to 45 years after the resurrection. Different ones that cite Jesus hasn't been resurrected and the tomb being empty. We take for granted so many other historical events with such less proof text and original manuscripts. I mean, we do that all the time. We just, we're told something happened in history. And we say, okay, yeah, because the history book says it, it, it happened in history. And yet here it is, a historical moment has happened and there are 27,000 plus manuscripts pointing to it. And we say, yeah, but I just can't believe that. That's impossible. Well, then what do you believe? What's your proof then of the empty tomb? Here's a second basis. It's the eyewitnesses. You know, if all we have is an empty tomb and we had no eyewitnesses, then yeah, I could believe grave robbing. I could believe body being stolen. I could believe some of that. But we have eyewitnesses to the resurrected Savior. In one of the earliest writings in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, the letter of Corinthians, Paul says this, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. I want you to notice that Paul is showing believers Jesus fulfilled the writings of the Old Testament. That the Old Testament, the prophets wrote about Jesus living and dying and being resurrected and Christ did it. Now look what he says. Who saw this? Who can we believe? Well, he was seen by Peter. And then by the 12, and after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And what I love about what Paul does is at the end there, he says, if you don't believe me in my letter, most of those guys are still alive, go ask them. See, we're reading something that's 2,000 years removed. And for you, you might say, well, that's why I can't believe it. This was written so long ago. But historians don't look at the difference between our time and when the event happened. They look at when the event happened and when it was written about. How small is that margin? Small enough that people with a much shorter lifespan were still alive and you could go knock on their door and say, Paul's saying you saw the resurrected Savior. Did you really see him? Oh, yeah, I saw him. Oh, you must have hallucinated because that's a major theory, the hallucination theory. And yet, to date, meaning let's fast forward to our day and age and our scientific research, there is nothing in the medical or scientific field that can prove that a group of people can hallucinate at the same time at various places over 40 days. They just didn't have shrooms that strong back then. <laughs> they just didn't know. We blaze church, we know. Most of you think it anyway, so let's just get it out there. Yeah, Blaze Church. Sinners. They couldn't stand up with this hallucination theory. It still can't hold any weight. There's, no, like, there's nothing. You can, again, I'm, I'm showing you 
And I'm not trying to come at you. I'm trying to come alongside you to ask, is the evidence you're holding onto, you are so set on believing whatever caused you to doubt the resurrection. All of your faith is in some evidence, and yet this evidence doesn't hold weight. And you're banking on it. You're believing that Jesus did not die and resurrect, and so his words can't be true. And yet, if he did resurrect, his words are true. And his word is said, apart from him, we are dead in our sins. And in him, we have resurrection power and life. That's why this matters. That's why getting this one down matters more than suffering, evil, pain, the Bible, absolutism. We've got to come to a conclusion here. And here's the third basis. The disciples believed. The disciples actually believed it. And what I mean by that is this. How does a group of Jewish people who for thousands of years have had one worldview when it comes to relating to Jehovah virtually overnight abandon that and ultimately give up their lives for this new Messiah? When their teaching had said, one, anyone who's nailed to a cross is cursed by God, Their teaching said that no one should claim to be God. That is blasphemy. All of this that pushes against their Judaism, and then they go to believe in him and die for him. Paul, a devout religious Pharisee, converts to Christianity, plants churches, and gives up his life for Christ. What causes that? What causes James, the younger half-brother of Jesus, who is recorded in the Gospel of John as having denied that his brother is the Christ, goes on to write a letter and says, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. What would your older brother have to do to convince you he's from God? Resurrect from the dead? That would do it. Because the only thing that causes the disciples to believe and this new worldview to emerge in the first century where Rome was dead set on squashing any insurrections and any worldviews that stopped their empire, and yet it thrives and it grows, is that there was a historical event, and the event was the resurrection. The evidence shows us. It points to it. So let me just ask you a few questions. If you have evidence that you lean into that says, no, I, st- I doubt it. I believe that it was this objection. There are questions that you have to answer. And after I ask them, I'm going to pass the mic around. I'm not going to do that. Think about these. Why did Christianity emerge so rapidly with such power in the first century, if not for a resurrection? No other band of messianic followers in that era concluded their leader was raised from the dead. Why did this group do it? Did you know that Barabbas, whose name was actually Bar-Jesus, it was another Jesus that was released He was held captive for starting a revolution. And yet his disciples are not recorded as claiming that he came back from the dead when he ultimately died. Why did this group say that about their Messiah? No group of Jews ever worshiped a human being as God. What led them to do it? Jews did not believe in divine men or individual resurrections. What changed their worldview virtually overnight? And this one. If you don't believe in the resurrection, how do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades, publicly maintained their testimony, and eventually gave up their life for their belief? What causes people to do that, if not a resurrection? Let me share with you this quote that I read. Don't short-circuit the process of belief with philosophical bias against the possibility of a miracle. Don't short-circuit the process. You are here today not by chance or accident. 
You are here because someone invited you. This is your church, but ultimately you're here because you are on a faith journey to know the God who loves you. Don't stop the process prematurely because of some philosophical leaning that says, yeah, but I reject miracles. If God exists, don't you think that he is a God who can perform miracles? So then wouldn't a resurrection be something that is just normal for a God? Don't stop the process. John saw and he believed. But what about Mary? We kind of just left her there. Let's go back, finish this up. It says Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. and She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord. She still leans into her doubt. Even after John has come, sees and believes, Mary is still the skeptic. And I don't know where they have put him. Verse 14, she turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. And I want you to see the first word out of Jesus's mouth. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. The only word that Jesus has to say For her to believe that he is the Lord is her name. The only word that he has to speak is her name. It is a personal word. And she recognizes in that moment, you're the Lord. Rabbi. I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it. Only one person said her name like that. She could feel her heart thumping. Mary wasn't able to find Jesus, but that was all right. Because Jesus knew where she was, and he found her. And I think it's okay to give God some praise right now if you know that the Lord has found you, and that it's not some head quest to figure it out. Guys, I want to say this to you this morning, because we're spending a lot of time talking about evidence and proof text and, and things that have to do with our thinking and our cognitive reason. What I love about true, authentic Christianity is it does not call us to abandon reason and doubt when we pick up faith to believe in Christ. You're not called to suddenly be a drone that just accepts things and never thinks about things and processes things. But let me say this to you. Logic and reasoning and all the proof in the world, that is not what leads you to the cross. It is love that leads you to the cross. And it is a personal encounter with the living Savior that causes you to walk with Jesus. And so what you and I need today is to consider the evidence, but we need to experience the love of our God. You need to know that he loves you and he died for you and has a plan for your life. See, I am so thankful that the resurrection is true for four reasons. The first is this, Jesus, by being the resurrected Savior, is Lord. That's why she's, Rabbani, your teacher. And I know that he is Lord, which means I am not, which means he is in control when I am not. If he was able to control death and the grave, then he has everything else under control for my life and for our church. And that's why we're praising God this morning as we're in this space worshiping him. He is Lord. He is in control. The second thing, he is alive. 
which means he intercedes for us. That's why we do as scripture says, we pray in the name of Jesus. The author of Hebrews commands us to not pray to angels or other saints, but says you have one mediator and his name is Jesus. See, Jesus is alive and so he intercedes on our behalf. Every prayer that you pray in Jesus' name is heard by the Father. He's alive. I'm not praying to a dead God or an old saint. I'm praying to a risen Savior. I want power in my prayer. The third thing we know is that Jesus is life himself, which means I don't have to settle for lesser life. That's not meaning that we're healthy, wealthy, and always blessed and embrace this prosperity and wealth message. No, what it means is I don't have to live for a career. I don't have to attach identity to being a parent. I don't have to look to my finances for security. Those are lesser lives. Those are not meant to define you. Jesus says, I have come to give you an abundant life, to give you a full life. And a dead savior can't do that, but a resurrected one can. And the fourth thing that we know is that Jesus, the resurrected savior, is the king. He is the returning king. Aragon got nothing on Jesus. He is the king. He, he is the one who has said, I go to prepare a place for you and I'm gonna come back. And he is gonna create the new heavens and the new earth and all the sad things will come untrue as we discovered a few weeks ago. He's our king, he's our hope, he's our assurance. So let me ask you today, in light of the evidence and in light of the love that God has for you, which is harder to believe, the resurrection or where you're putting your faith right now. I love a book that Frank Turek wrote, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, was the name of it. It just explores how much faith you really need to push against the evidence that so clearly says Jesus is alive. So I wanna invite you this morning, because I know this is a big topic and we're closing out this series today, to continue the conversation, to continue thinking but don't lean so hard into a philosophical bias that you reject miracles and resurrection. And if you want to connect with me, you can email doubt at blazechurch.org. That's still active. We can still engage. I'll do a whole lot more listening than talking because you got to hear me speak for 30 minutes today. But I want to just, I want to walk with you. I don't want you to stop the process simply because it just couldn't have happened. Consider the evidence. Let me read you this final quote as our worship team comes up. The stone was not rolled away from the entrance to the tomb so Jesus could get out. He could have left easily without removing the stone. It was rolled away so others could get in and see that Jesus was gone. The stone was rolled away so that Mary, John, and Peter, and us could get in so that we could see the tomb is empty because Jesus has resurrected. What do you have to lose to consider the resurrection as a historical fact? Really, what, what is it that you forfeit in that moment? And yet, what do you gain by putting your faith in Jesus? Jesus said, if you hold on to your life, you will lose it. If you give up your life, give up your doubt today, you will gain the world. And so the title of my message, Doubt It, because I would like to encourage you to doubt your doubts. It's one of the best things we can do with our doubts. Instead of taking them and, it's not the Bible, everybody, and standing on them and saying, man, this is where I stand on. This is what I put my faith in. Grave robbing, stolen body, 
not really dead. I don't believe in the miraculous. I reject that. I stand on this. Would you for a moment doubt that what you're standing on is solid ground? You've already got the ability to doubt. You're doubting the resurrection. So what if you doubted your doubts? I said, okay, I'm going I'm to pick it up. I'm going to start reading. And I'm going to start listening. I'm going to explore the evidence. And I'm going to experience the love of God. Let him in. The stone was rolled so that you might get in. And I want to invite you to put your faith in Jesus this morning. May 2nd is not just a beautiful new chapter in the life of Blaze Church, but I believe for many in this space and online, it's a beautiful new chapter in your life personally. As you say, Jesus, be my Savior, be my Lord. So I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads as we pray. It leads you in a moment where you can confess that you need Jesus to be your Savior. And when we're done, our welcome team is going to walk through the aisles and just have some resources. It's a free little booklet. Just give them a wave and say, hey, I'd like to get one of those to know what my next step is now that I've confessed Jesus is my Savior. But as a church, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus died and rose again so I could be forgiven. I thank you for new life. Today I give you mine. I surrender all to you. Make me brand new. In Jesus' name, amen.